Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, an Old Testament survey from Abraham to modern Israel. Well, we've now traversed close to 700 years of Bible history since the time of Abraham. Our Old Testament survey has taken us from Abraham's birthplace in his home in Mesopotamia down to the land of Canaan, further down to Egypt, from Egypt back up to Canaan, then back again to Egypt. See a pattern here? And now after 400 years in Egypt, the Hebrews that Abraham spawned have grown from a small family, Abraham and his wife Sarah and their son Isaac, to an enormous people group of something around 3 million people. However, after having been welcomed into Egypt by by Joseph and and the Pharaoh as guests, they're now Egypt's slave labor force. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, was given a new name by the Lord, Israel. And so the twelve sons that he fathered became known in the Bible as the Israelites. By now, the descendants of each of these twelve sons had grown significantly large enough to be called a tribe. And one of those tribes was named Levi. It was, of course, from this tribe that a baby boy was born who God would use to change the course of history. His name was Moses. Now, during this time that Moses' mother was pregnant uh, with him, the Pharaoh decreed that the Israelite population was getting much too large, in his view, and to stem this rising Hebrew tide, he ordered that immediately upon birth all male babies were to be killed. Now, Moses' mother birthed Moses in secret and took her infant to the Nile River, laid him in a waterproof uh, basket, and placed him in the reeds not too far from where one of the Egyptian princesses regularly bathed. Hoping that the princess's motherly instincts would override her loyalty to her father, the pharaoh, Yehokaved released the basket and her child into God's hands. The princess saw the basket. She opened it to find a baby and then adopted him for her own. Moses' sister, Miriam, watched all this happen and then suggested to the princess that a Hebrew woman could be a wet nurse for the baby and she agreed to that. Now many years later the adult Moses raised as an Egyptian prince and living the life of royalty at the palace witnessed an Egyptian strike a Hebrew. Something snapped within Moses. He confronted this Egyptian and he murdered him. And noticing that there were witnesses, he then did the only thing that he could do. He fled Egypt from Midian. And after arriving in Midian, he met a priest who in time gave Moses his daughter in marriage. And Moses from here forward would live the life of a humble shepherd. But at 80 years of age, 80 years of age, something astounding happened. He met God. 
And God told Moses something that he had told no one up to this point in history. His name. It was yud Hey vav Hey. We say Yahweh or Yehoveh. But he also told Moses he was to go back to Egypt to deliver God's people from the oppression they suffered under Pharaoh and Moses obeyed. Well, upon entering Egyptian territory, he is greeted by his brother Aaron, whom God had informed that Moses was coming and of this plan to get the Israelites released. And that plan began with Aaron and Moses together confronting the Pharaoh with the Lord's demand to let his people go. And when Pharaoh refused, the Lord, through Moses, began inflicting a series of blows against Egypt that would devastate the land and the people of Egypt. Well, the plagues achieve their intended purpose. Pharaoh relents. He bids the Israelites goodbye, and they leave. He changes his mind, and he chases after them to the Red Sea. Now, trapped, the people feel sure that Moshe has made a grave error as their backs are against the deep waters of the, of the Gulf of Aqaba, and now they don't have anywhere to escape. God opens the sea for them. He even dries the sea bottom, and the Israelites escape to the distant shore, which is on Midian, which is on the Arabian Peninsula. Pharaoh's troops give chase. They're drowned when the waters that God opened for the Israelites come crashing down upon the Egyptian soldiers. Well, now the exact site of the crossing is unknown, as is the exact route that the Israelites took when leaving Egypt. Liberal Bible scholars claim they didn't cross through the Red Sea at all, but rather over a large mud flat that was called the Reed Sea. However, this makes no sense, because even if it was unnecessary that God opened the waters for their escape, it's pretty difficult to understand how those Egyptian soldiers drowned in a few inches of, of, of water that covered over this mud flat. Now, many Bible researchers think what they crossed over was indeed at that time called the Red Sea, but is now called the Gulf of Suez. For Suez was and remains a deep, substantial branch off of the main body of water that is today called the Red Sea. And geologists tell us that the Red Sea pushed at least 50 miles further northwest in Moses' time than today and would, have, would correspond well to the place where most of the Israelites lived, the city of Ramesses. There's been a lot of scholarly research on this pivotal biblical event or better miracle of God. And as we well know, a lot of faith has been required for Christendom to stand firm against the consensus of opinion among some of the most renowned archaeologists and Egyptologists. This opinion could be summed up by saying that either the event never occurred or that the Exodus was greatly exaggerated, especially when it comes to the biblical details of the parting of the waters and the huge number of Israelites participating. Actually, there is the greatest archaeological evidence 
that at a minimum the exodus did occur, that the number of Israelites was enormous, and as we previously discussed, that the city where they were purported to live was of sufficient size to support that large of a Hebrew population. Recently, however, some new light has been shed on the issue of the route of the Exodus as well as the location of Mount Sinai. Now, I want to share some of that with you um, because I personally find this new evidence quite convincing. Otherwise, I wouldn't even offer it to you. But I want to say up front, I am certainly not dogmatic about it and reasonable people can differ. Hopefully, we've well established where the Israelites were located in Egypt. Then that was primarily in Goshen, a region of what was called Lower Egypt. Now, without doubt, many Hebrews lived in other areas of Egypt. Likely, they had to be gathered quickly to join the main body of Israelites that lived in Averis, also known as the city of Ramesses. Some probably even caught up to and joined that group led by Moses within a few days of their departure. So knowing where they departed from, what would have been their logical route? Well, we know that God did not take them directly from Egypt to Canaan through the most direct, the most logical route, which would have been the old ancient trade highway called the Way of the Philistines. Instead, the Lord sent them on a much more circuitous route to Canaan, as noted in Exodus 13:17, where it says, after Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them to the highway that goes through the land of the Philistines because it was close by. God thought that the people, upon seeing war, might change their minds and return to Egypt. But there was another reason that they didn't go that way. God had already directed Moses to go to a specific place he was to lead the Israelites upon leaving on their exodus from Egypt. Instead, we are told that God led them on an alternate route through the wilderness. Now even though we know that they were eventually going to wind up in Canaan, what was to be their first destination? Sometime earlier, God had instructed Moses that when he brought them out of Egypt, he was to bring them directly to the mountain of God. Today, we most often refer to the mountain of God as Mount Sinai. So where is the mountain of God? Well, let's backtrack for a minute to find out. Moses was still in the court of Pharaoh. But after he had killed the Egyptian and fled to avoid prosecution, we know that he went to the land of Midian. The location of the land of Midian is well established geographically through archaeology, all manner of ancient records. It's, it's undisputed. Midian is on the western end of what today we call the Arabian Peninsula. There in Midian, after decades had passed, one day, while he's attending his flocks in the plains of Midian, Moses, Moses encountered God on a hilltop. This was the burning bush incident. 
Listen to Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. It seems that Moses had moved his flocks towards the western side of the desert wilderness where he resided. Now a little bit further down in that same chapter, Exodus 3 and verse 12, we come to this all-important statement. Now remember, we're still in the midst of the burning bush conversation with God. When, Bible tell, when the Bible tells us this, and he, God, said, Certainly I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. This mountain. Okay. The same mountain of the burning bush where God gave Moses his marching orders to go fetch the people of Israel out of Egypt is the same mountain that Moses was to bring the Israelites to encounter God upon their exit from Egypt. The Israelites were simply doing exactly what God told Moses several years earlier. They were heading to the mountain of God. The mountain where Moses met God in the burning bush. But wait! We just saw that this mountain of Exodus 3.12 is, is, is in Midian. It's not in the Sinai Peninsula. It's in Midian. It's not on the Sinai Peninsula. It's on the Arabian Peninsula. Not very far from the Red Sea. Could that be right? Well, none other than the Apostle Paul says so. In Galatians... When Paul was trying to explain some things to some Jews about the law, the Torah, and he by his own words used some allegory as an illustration tool. And while our interest is not in the substance and point of his dissertation, an important piece of information is found embedded in his statement in Galatians 4.25. Listen carefully because Paul says, Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia hmm now don't get hung up on the Hagar term because Paul was just using Hagar mother of Ishmael to make a point the important information concerning our current subject is the location of the mountain of God of Mount Sinai where does Paul say Mount Sinai called Mount Horeb also called the mountain of God is located Arabia Midian, right where Moses says he went to meet God, is in Arabia. Philo, the great Jewish philosopher, says Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Josephus, who lived during the time of Christ, says it's common knowledge that Mount Sinai is in the Arabian Peninsula. So if the mountain where the people of the Exodus went to receive the law was in Arabia, why have all modern day Christian travelers, me included by the way, gone to a monastery at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula that is identified as Mount Sinai, as the place where Moses led the Israelites to and then received the Ten Commandments? Why do all the books today 
show that the route of the Exodus went through that particular location. Well, prior to about 300 A.D., there was absolutely nothing culturally, traditionally, or historically in Egypt, Palestine, Arabia, anywhere else for that matter that connected the tip of the Sinai as the location of the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. It wasn't until Christianity had emerged as a fully Gentile religion and every element of Christianity's Jewish roots was now taboo and rapidly being removed from biblical history that the Sinai Peninsula became designated as the holy place where the Ten Commandments as well as all the Torah was received by Moses. And it was decided upon by some ascetic Christian monks in the 4th century AD who were wandering through that area and they felt that a particular mountain on the tip of Sinai resembled some of the biblical descriptions of the mountain of God. They even named that mountain Mount Sinai. And from that and nothing else, the leaders of the church concluded this was the place where the Ten Commandments were given. So they built a monastery there and that's that. One more thing about the Sinai Peninsula site that makes it all but impossible for that to be the mountain of God. There is no place for a couple of million people to camp. Even if you were to cut that number down to a tenth of what the Bible tells us, there is simply no flat area suitable for thousands of people to camp for a full year, which is what the Israelites did right at the base of Mount Sinai according to the Bible. I've been there more than once. Not anymore. And I can tell you, it is rough, it is strewn with boulders, it's uneven, it's simply a moonscape with no plane at all anywhere within miles near the bottom of that mountain that would be suitable for camping. However, if we accept that the mountain of God was in Midian on the Arabian Peninsula, which is precisely what the Bible tells us, then exactly where in Midian is the real Mount Sinai? Well, a location has been found that fits every biblical description to a T. It's called Jebel Elaz. And it's in a mountain range that since time immemorial has been called by its local Arab inhabitants, interestingly enough, the Mountains of Moses. And at the foot of that mountain is a flat, wide plain of almost 20 square miles. The remnants of a very large ancient riverbed flow right through it. Could this have been the mountain of God? I don't know. But it's a far more likely place than that peak upon which rests St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai. Now, let's look at one more issue. Because I think it's kind of interesting. The Red Sea Crossing. First of all, I want to say that I'm not going to try to find a way using some rare but natural phenomenon as a way to explain the parting of the waters and the drying of the seabed. It was an act of God. 
It was a miracle impossible except by the Creator's own doing. However, there are some elements of it that have to make sense. For instance, since we're told that the Israelites gathered on a beach on the edge of the waters at Pihahirot, which means the mouth of the gorge, we need to find a site that can fit those characteristics. And it must be on a way on the way to Midian. So, as is well known from years past, there existed a well-traveled trade route that went across the center of the Sinai Peninsula. In fact, it is likely that is the same route that Moses used to flee to Midian when he was a young fugitive and then returned to gather the people of Israel from the Pharaoh's hand. And this route leads to a long winding riverbed that goes through a mountainous wilderness area which then dumps out at the Gulf of Aqaba a large deep finger of the Red Sea which separates the main body of the Sinai from the Arabian Peninsula and at the end of this gorge that is the Pihahirot is a huge beach fully capable of holding two to three million people directly across the Gulf of Aqaba from this beach that is the opposite side the opposite shore lies another beach of more than sufficient size for the fleeing Israelites to have gathered as they watched the waters crush and drown the Pharaoh's army. Here's the thing. The waters of the Gulf of Aqaba are very deep, up to a thousand feet in spots. What must be considered is that when God parted the water and he dried the seafloor, the topography could not have been too steep of an incline from the beach to the sea floor or too rocky or too uneven for a couple of million people with elderly and children, disabled, livestock to travel over. I don't care how dry it is. Between the two beaches that I've just identified to you, on each side, one on each side of the gulf, is a raised portion of the seabed lying only 50 feet under the water. It is wide, it's sandy, and it's relatively flat. If the gulf was drained of water, you see that picture up there, on the, on the, uh, see the illustration on the screen. If the gulf was drained of water at this location, we would find a perfect land bridge between the two sides of the gulf connecting those two large beaches. One more thing. Could these two to three million Israelites have traveled from the land of Goshen all the way across the Sinai to the Gulf of Aqaba in three weeks? Because that's how long they were gone before Pharaoh's army caught up to them as they reached the Red Sea and they couldn't go any further. Yes, it's entirely feasible because they traveled both day and night for the first part of their journey. So they certainly um, would have been able to traverse the Sinai Peninsula, which is about 175 miles, in 21 days. God wanted them to get as much distance as possible, as quickly as possible, between them and the Egyptians. Listen to Exodus 13.21. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, a pillar of fire by night to give them light 
in order that they might travel by day and by night. They traveled with brief periods of rest day and night. And as anyone who's lived extensively in desert areas, as I have, we know that you do most of your traveling, if you can, during the night. And you take your rest during the day to avoid the scorching heat. The Israelites really made time during the first three weeks of their journey when they were the freshest, when they had the most enthusiasm and not just a little bit of fear that the Pharaoh was going to come after them. Regardless of their route out of Egypt, the Israelites are now free. They're out of Egyptian-held territory. Sinai was Egyptian-held territory. And they're after having lived in Egypt for 400 years. Actually, it was 430 years to the day after Jacob, called Israel, entered Egypt at the behest of his son Joseph that the Israelites escaped Pharaoh's clutches. It's now about 1350 B.C. Now, although we are studying Egypt and the Israelites, the rest of the world wasn't without activity. Far to the north, the Assyrians are a new, they're a growing power with empire building in mind. To the west, the Greeks are sailing now as far as England and Ireland. In the Mediterranean, Crete, with its highly advanced civilization and art and science, maybe even surpassing that of the Egyptians, suddenly disappears for reasons scholars still debate to this day. Well, estimates of the size of the group that Moshe led are from 3,000 to 3.5 million people. The only numbers that the Bible gives us are that 600,000 men capable of bearing arms were included. If one considers the arms-bearing age to be, say, 17 to 40, it would be reasonable to multiply that number by five or six to account for women, children, and elderly males and females. Many Bible scholars doubt the biblical reference to 600,000 males for no other reason than it would indicate a vast horde of people tending to the largest number I mentioned. All evidence points to that large number. I mean, think about it. The Egyptians were so afraid of the Israelites' enormous population that they took the drastic measure of killing the Hebrew firstborn males to slow their growth. I mean, this would only have harmed their aggressive building plants. And we know that for a long time after the Israelites left, building in Egypt crawled nearly to a halt and their civilization stalled. A few thousand Israelites in a land estimated to have been populated populated by 10 to 12 million people at that time, mostly Egyptians, would have created neither alarm by their presence, certainly not economic meltdown because they left. If perhaps, however, a quarter of the population of Egypt were Israelites, as suggested by the Bible, That is an entirely different matter. It would explain the severe economic downturn that occurred following the Exodus. And a number in the 2 to 3 million range is entirely feasible. Well, God led the Israelites with a cloud 
in the day, column of fire at night, and as was mentioned, during the first three weeks they traveled rapidly, both night and day. After all, in the mind of Pharaoh, these Israelites were fugitives. They were escapees. They weren't refugees. Well, the Israelites were acutely aware of God's presence with them. About a month into their journey, many realities of their changed living conditions started to settle in. I mean, not the least of which, how is a wandering horde of two to three million hungry mouths going to eat? I mean, they were allowed to take their flocks and their herds with them, but grain was their staple food. Even if they had some grain with them when they left, it would have lasted a few days, maybe a few weeks at best. And their route required them to stay away from known and natural food and water sources. They were in a desert wilderness that even today is inhabited by no more than maybe 4,000 people. But even if they had followed such routes, it's unthinkable that there was any way they could have organized to provide for themselves the huge volumes of food and water that were required. Feeding 2 to 3 million people? Well, that could occur only in very structured, sophisticated cities like the advanced and magnificent Egyptian cities that they came from. And here they were, displaced city slickers, suddenly turned overnight, literally, into wandering tent dwellers. They didn't have a clue how to survive in this place. Well, the U.S. Army Quartermaster has calculated what it would take to provision three million people. On a daily basis, it would take a minimum of 11 million gallons of water and the capacity of all of the freight cars of two trains each a mile long for food daily. This would not account for the food and water required for the flocks and herds. God solved the problem. Quite elegantly, actually. He just rained food on them from the sky as needed in the form of manna. A tasty, nutritious food that was their primary food supply for the entire 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. Boring, no doubt, but apparently healthy. And as they needed water, Yehovah, God's name, provided, even springing it forth from rocks, apparently in enormous volumes. And by the way, Upon entering the Promised Land, the minute they stepped foot across the Jordan River, the manna stopped as quickly as it started. Well, about 12 weeks after leaving Egypt, they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. The mountaintop that Moses would ascend was ringed in clouds, and God called to Moses, and it must have been like deja vu for him, as Moses remembered back to when he first met God in the burning bush that was at this same location. There, God reiterated all these promises he'd made to Moshe and and the Israelites during the wringing out of the Pharaoh's will back in Egypt. But the Lord even went further. He says this, If you will keep my covenant then you will be my own treasure from among all the peoples. You will be a kingdom of 
Kohanim, a kingdom of priests for me, a nation that is set apart. Moshe climbs back down the mountain and he assembles the people. Certainly a couple of a million people did not personally hear Moses' voice. But to those leaders and elders who did hear Moses announce what God had just told him, they replied, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. He climbs back up the mountain, he receives the Ten Commandments. Actually, he goes back up and down that mountain a number of times during which he receives many laws and commandments that are given to Moses by God. And these laws and commandments are the Torah. Christians know this better as the first five books of the Bible. Modern Bibles use the word law when translating the word Torah. This is a very large misnomer we'll explore later. Now one trip back down the mountain, Moses returns to find that many of the disgruntled Israelites had built a golden calf to worship. 400 years in Egypt had polluted their worship. Many of their practices had become pagan and abomination to God. The golden calf, no doubt, was a representation of the Apis bull, a high deity of the Egyptians, of which these people were fully aware. They probably even participated in worshipping it during their centuries in Egypt. Now Moses, infuriated, hurls these stone tablets of the Ten Commandments down in a rage and he follows God's orders that the still faithful kill as many of these calf worshippers as they could. A bloodbath ensues and the rebels are purged. Now you can take the people out of Egypt but it takes a long time to take the Egypt out of the people. It was going to take 40 years to mold these Israelites into a godly nation and for them to forget the pagan ways that they were taught during their four centuries under the pharaohs. Well, it was at Mount Sinai that the Levites were first anointed as God's priests and Aaron was the first high priest. And among the instructions God gave to Moses was that an earthly model of God's heavenly dwelling place should be constructed to excruciating standards. This wilderness tabernacle was an elaborate, richly decorated tent that was going to travel with the Israelites. And around the tent, which consisted of two compartments, was to be a large courtyard where the priests would officiate as the Israelite worshippers brought their animal sacrifices to be slaughtered and burned up on that brazen altar. Inside the tent, there were special ritual furnishings, the most famous of those being the Ark of the Covenant with its special lid called the Mercy Seat. The Ark was placed in the rearmost compartment of the tent, the compartment called the Holy of Holies. It was there that Moses would meet with God when God called to him. Many years later, during the time of King Solomon, the tent would be decommissioned and it would be replaced with a fabulous permanent structure. We know this structure is the first temple. Well, after about a year camped at the base of Mount Sinai, Moshe leads the people to the oasis of Kadesh Barnea, Kadesh was on the southern border of the land of Canaan. Kadesh 
was right there on their way. They needed to go through this to get to their destination. It was a 150 mile journey of 11 days, but over some very rough, rocky, dry, scorching terrain to get there. The people grumbled all along the way. And now a little more than 15 months into their journey to the land God promised them, tempers were starting to grow short. The Israelites didn't feel they could stand much more of this. Little did they know what actually lay ahead. Moses' own sister, Miriam, was one of his staunchest supporters, but now she wonders out loud if God and Moses have any clue what they're doing. She's struck with leprosy for her sin of contempt and disbelief. Well, upon their arrival now at Kadesh, Moses immediately sends out spies to reconnoiter, knowing full well the promised land, Canaan, is inhabited by people who aren't going to be thrilled at the prospect of three million uninvited foreigners showing up on their doorstep. He wants to know what they're going to be up against. Well, 12 spies are sent out, one from each of the tribes, and they return with conflicting stories. Ten of them say that although the land is all that God promised, the inhabitants are big and strong and well-armed. It'd be suicide to engage them in battle. Joshua, Yahshua, a member of the tribe of Ephraim, and Caleb, Caleb, from the tribe of Judah, they have a different impression. They think the Israelites ought to attack immediately and stand on God's promise of victory. Not coincidentally, it would be the tribes of Ephraim and Judah which would one day become dominant over all the other tribes of Israel. Think that's a coincidence? So rumors spread around the camp. People have no interest in battle. Their expectation was that the hardest part of their transition to their new home was the journey. So they whine and they cry and they tear their clothes in anguish, wondering why God would bring them all the way here just to die. Then the unthinkable happens. Mutiny. They decide they're going to appoint a new leader and they're going to do away with Moses. Bad idea. God decides he is going to judge all these rebels with poisonous snake bites, sickness, all manner of pestilence. Moses pleads with God to please forgive these people's rebellion. God relents. But a price will be extracted now for the people's actions. God declares not one of the Israelites who are currently of an age of accountability will live to enter the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb who did their best to persuade the people to believe God. Now sadly, for other reasons, this is going to apply to Moses as well. So, standing at the threshold, standing right there at the threshold of, of centuries of promise, A promise given to Abraham seven centuries earlier. The Israelites are turned away back into the barren desert. And apparently, 
some of the group splinters because the Bible seems to speak of multiple routes taken simultaneously. But the vast majority continues to follow Moses. And for the next 38 years, they will live in the tortuous conditions of the mounts of the Sinai Peninsula, moving every 18 months or so to new pasture lands and water. Only two years removed from dwelling in mud brick houses in Egypt's great cities. Two to three million Israelites now live as Bedouins live to this day, journeying from oasis to oasis, living in goatskin tents. And we'll continue this adventure next week.